Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for continuing to come back for this kind of weird series we're doing. Uh, I want to invite everyone, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're just going to jump right into this. So, we have been in this series on the book of Revelation, and what we've been trying to do with this series is we've been trying to look at this book and essentially ask, like, okay, is it possible that the way that this book has been talked about in in a lot of the circles that we have traveled in, is it possible that this is actually has not been as helpful as we might think it has been? Like when we when we begin talking about this book in terms of like there's a code here, and if you have to decode it and you have to get to all like the weird secret answers about when like the world is going to end and when like fire is going to fall from the sky and things are going to crawl out of the ocean or whatever is supposed to happen, and and we begin to sort of interact with this thing in in, in ways that I would argue we were never meant to interact with them because the thing is this book was sent to a group of people. It was sent to seven different churches by a guy named John thousands of years ago. And when it was sent to these seven different churches, they received it. And when they received it, they said, oh, this is really good news. And so why, and and essentially we're asking the question, why is it that we have taken this and we have like sucked all of the life and the good news out of it in an attempt to sort of imagine some sort of other like puzzle that we have to solve or some sort of other thing that it's never been supposed to be. And so a lot of people have a really hard time with this book very specifically because no one has ever told them that, that, that it was actually written to someone and it was actually received in a certain kind of way. And so what we're, what we're asking with this series is, okay, what if we read this book as if we lived in these places that first received it? And how, what would that feel like? And in what ways would that sort of free us to begin engaging these words in the way that they were meant to be engaged? And so um, I want to invite you, if you, I, already, I don't remember if I said that or not. If I haven't, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter two. And um, we, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the, each of these cities that, that, this, uh, that this letter was written to because each of these cities have sort of their own kind of internal conflict going on. And there's this portion towards the beginning of the book where John, the writer, is, is essentially communicating to them and saying, okay, here, I, here's what I know about life in your city and here is why this, this is important. And so for the last couple of weeks, we looked at, or two weeks ago, we looked at the city of Ephesus and what this book would have meant to that group of people. And then last week, we looked at the, the city of Smyrna or Smyrna or however, however you prefer to say it. And we, we asked questions about, okay, how would they have received it? And so now we're looking at the third city. Uh, and, and so that's where we're starting up in, um, in Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse 12. So uh, this is what he writes. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? And so, first of all, of course, uh, and we mentioned this a couple of times, the word angel in Greek is the word angelos, which literally means messenger. And so what he's saying is whoever's job it is to stand up in front of the people and like communicate things, I want you to send this to them so that that person can then communicate it to everybody else. And so he writes to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So we know, just right off the bat, we know he's writing to a city called Pergamum. So the first question we have to begin asking is, okay, what do we know about the city of Pergamum? What do we, when we think about life in this time, what was unique about the city of Pergamum, and why is he writing specifically to this group of people? So the first thing, and probably this is the defining characteristic of the ancient city of Pergamum. And by the way, all these cities exist in what is modern-day Turkey, what was known as Asia Minor. And so the city of Pergamum, and all these cities, by the way, are occupied and controlled by the Roman Empire. That's a hugely important thing to understand as we read the book of Revelation. So the city of Pergamum, 
more than any other city in, in possibly the entire ancient world, the city of Pergamum was an incredibly religious city. And when I say religious city, I'm not saying like a lot of people all like went to church on Sunday or a lot of people all like had like one specific set of beliefs. No, what I'm saying is like there were lots and lots and lots of religions. And at this time and place, like being part of one religion did not exclude you from being part of another religion. And so what you had is you had an entire system of people who were participating in lots of different religious practices in lots of different religious structures because you would, depending on what you needed in the moment, you would have to go to whatever God or religious system provided that particular thing. And so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to look at, okay, what was the situation? Like what, what were the different systems of faith in the city of Pergamum? So we're going to look at a couple of, or several different ones. And so the first one we're going to look at uh, was the worship of the goddess Athena. This is a statue, by the way. I'm just, I mean, like, I'm not like, for, for, this is really more for the podcast listeners than anything else. Like, I'm not like, okay, now bring in Athena. Like, this is, uh, this is just a statue. It's not a real thing. But um, what you would find in the city of Pergamum, you would have one of the largest uh, temples to the goddess Athena. This, now, if you're at all familiar with Greek mythology, you're somewhat aware, I'm sure, of Athena. Athena was the goddess of war. She was also the goddess of wisdom, which, by the way, if you, if you have lots of different gods that do lots of different things and you consolidate war and wisdom into one god, that tells you a lot about how a society views both war and wisdom. So you have the goddess Athena. And so let's say you are, um, you are in, a, in a situation where your people are about to go to war or you are in, in some sort of conflict with another group of people, which is something that happened all the time at this time and place in history. And so if you are someone who is about to go to war, you would go to Athena and you would pray for strength in battle. You would pray for um, not necessarily safety. You would definitely pray for like a warrior's death or something along those lines. And so victory essentially is what you would pray for. And so if Athena found favor with you, then you're then you personally would have some sort of military victory and your military would have some sort of victory. And so if you were ever going to go into some sort of conflict, or if you had a family member who was ever going into some sort of conflict, you wanted Athena on your side. And so one of the, one of the major priorities in this, in this group of people was we have to keep Athena happy because if Athena isn't happy, then we will not be successful in battle. And when you, when you are occupied by the most by the strongest, largest army slash empire in the known world in history, then military strength is actually a pretty big part of your culture. So Athena was a really big deal. So then you have, that's, that's one. And then you have also a God called, I, I made these. And so it's a little hard to like, just like hook them. But, um, you, you, this is a God whose name is Asclepius. And Asclepius is the god of healing and the god of medicine. In fact, if you've ever been to a hospital, which some of you have, if you've ever been to a hospital and you've seen a staff, like on, an, on some sort of emblem, you've seen a staff with a snake wrapped around it, um, that is that, that's something you see a lot. Now notice, what is Asclepius holding? He's holding a staff with a snake wrapped around it. This was a, uh, in fact, the word Asclepius means snake. And so this became a symbol universally of healing and medicine. And so Asclepius was the god of healing. So, which means if you ever had any sort of medical need, you would go to the temple of Asclepius, which was actually also a hospital. And so you would go into the temple of Asclepius and, I mean, let's say, let's say you break your arm. You broke your arm and you need your arm to get better. And at this time and place in history, they don't know about like biology and like bones and ligaments and how like the body can heal itself. All they know is you're hurt 
and you need to not be hurt anymore. And there must be a God who provides that service. And so if you, if you find favor in the eyes of Asclepius, you will be healed. But in order to find favor in the, in the eyes of Asclepius, you have to go to the temple of Asclepius. So you would go to the temple and you would, uh, you would consult with a priest and the priest would take you to an isolated room and he would give you a mind altering substance to take. And then you would go into basically a trance or basically a deep sleep. And the, the idea was while you're in your deep sleep, you will have a vision of Asclepius. Asclepius will come to you in your dream and he will tell you how you are to be healed. And so then when you wake up, you go and consult with the priest and you tell him what you saw. And the, then the priest will basically uh, prescribe specific kinds of behavior, specific worship acts, not just like, you know, not just like put your arm in a cast, but also like do certain like worship rituals and then Asclepius will heal you. And so if Asclepius doesn't heal you, that means you did not find favor in the eyes of the gods. You didn't do it right. The god, the Asclepius was angry at you and you were not healed. However, if you are healed, then you have to go back to the temple and show gratitude to Asclepius. And how you do that is you hire a sculptor who, by the way, is employed by the temple. And the, and the sculptor will then make a sculpture of whatever body part was healed. So if you, if you had broken your arm and your arm gets better, then you hire, you pay a sculptor to then make a mold of your arm. And then you take the mold of your arm into the temple and you, and you present it to the priest as an act of gratitude and worship to Asclepius. And then they would add, they would add the body part that to their ever growing collection of human body parts as a way of saying Asclepius has healed this person. And so there was, and so like you would have these massive temples to Asclepius where they would constantly be accumulating like sculpted body parts. And so one of the biggest temples in the world to Asclepius was in the city of Pergamum. Now, what's interesting, and this is just an aside because I found it. Sometimes I, I learn things, and it like doesn't really help the sermon, but I'm like, I cannot wait to tell you guys about this. So this is one of those things. So one of, the, one of the largest temples to Asclepius in the ancient world was in a city called Corinth. In fact, archaeologists have, have uncovered this temple and have found over 30,000 body parts, like sculpted body parts, in this ancient temple, which is really interesting because there's this guy named Paul who wrote a letter to the city of Corinth that you have in your Bible. And one of the things that Paul says to the city of Corinth is to, to the church. He says, you are a body with many parts. Oh, okay. So like, right. Like that's way too much fun to not include. Like that'll totally show up in another sermon at some point down the road. I just had to tell you guys about that. But, but why do you think every once in a while, Jesus refers to himself as like a physician or a healer? Why is he just using this language randomly or is he making commentary on a system that already exists? And so, like I said, one of the largest temples to Asclepius existed in Pergamum. And so if you ever, and as all of us do, if you ever need medical attention, you would go to the temple. And if if you found favor with Asclepius, he would heal you. And if you didn't, he would not. And so... so you have to keep Athena happy, but you also have to keep Asclepius happy. Then... Third, uh, there's a goddess named Demeter, and she is the goddess of basically of food, of like grain and groceries, basically. And so if you ever, so every time you would sit down to a meal, you would offer gratitude to Demeter because the reason you have food on your, on your table is because Demeter has been generous and Demeter has provided. However, if it, and if you're in any sort of agricultural system, which these people were, and you, like, last year you had so many crops, but then this year you have a little bit less crops than you had last year. It's not like, oh, the soil wasn't as, you know, as, as useful or as healthy as it was this year. It didn't rain as much. There wasn't as much sunshine. There was more shade. There was whatever. It wasn't any of that. It was, 
we have lost favor in the eyes of Demeter. And so what then you have to do is you have to take what you do have and you have to begin sacrificing more of it to show Demeter how serious you are about worshiping her so that next year you can have more crops. And so when you have, essentially, when you are running out of food, instead of saying, maybe we should be wise here and save it, you have to begin like just basically like sacrificing it so that Demeter will see how serious you are. And so... It, it, this becomes actually a very like costly kind of thing. You have people who end up going hungry out of the need to try and keep Demeter happy. Which, again, if you look at some of the prayers of Jesus, what, what does he pray? Give us this day our daily bread, which is an ancient Jewish prayer, but it's also a direct commentary on, yeah, so if we're praying to this God who, that Jesus prays for, when Jesus continues to insist that it, the whole thing is run by grace and love and that the work is done... What, is that, what does that say about a system in which you have to continue to sacrifice more and more in order to have bread on your table? So you have angry gods, and then Jesus says, but maybe there's another way, and there's another God. So that's Demeter. Now, there's, there's another one named, and by Owen, oh, one of the, again, Demeter, huge in Pergamum. Big, lots and lots of worship of Demeter in the city of Pergamum. The next god in Pergamum um, was... I really should have made that better. But um, this, this is a guy named Dionysus. Dionysus is, how are we doing on kids in the room? Dionysus is uh, the god of wine. He's the god of sex. He's the god of theater. Basically, he's the god of fun. And so, um, in fact, I don't know if you can tell, Dionysus has like grapes growing out of his head because he's the god of wine. So why not? And so, by the way, this is, this is the only G-rated photo of Dionysus I could find. You, if you Google, and I'm just warning you, if you Google image picture, like pictures of like Dionysus statues or altars, do, like it is, th- that is some adult stuff. And so, um, so I actually had to, I had, I had to go really, really deep into, into Google to just, just to find a picture that I could like show your children. So, um, because Dionysus, again, God of uh, wine, sex, slash fertility, and theater. And so in Pergamum, in the city of Pergamum, there was this massive amphitheater that could seat 10,000 people where you would have theater, you would have like plays and things like that. And next to the stage, there was the entrance to the Dionysian temple. And how you would worship Dionysus is you would go into the temple and you would make an offering, of course, and you would then participate in uh, receiving the spirit of Dionysus, which basically means drinking until you can't anymore. And so that this is how you keep Dionysus happy. Because if you want fertility and if you want to continue to um to enjoy life then you have to keep Dionysus happy because otherwise life becomes kind of a drag and so so everything enjoyable in life comes from Dionysus so this is another god that you have to keep happy you have to keep all the other gods happy but then you have to make sure you have some sort of joy in your life which comes from Dionysus so then now, if you want any of these gods to cooperate with you, you also have to keep Zeus happy because Zeus is the god over all the other gods in the Greek pantheon. And so, in fact, one of the largest temples in the world to Zeus was located in Pergamum. And you can Google this. There's a massive, there's, and I think there's a replica built in a museum somewhere in Turkey, but um, you can see this massive temple to Zeus. It was one of the largest structures in the entire city. And one of the, and as part of the structure, there was this massive throne where, that Zeus was supposed to occupy. It was like an empty throne that Zeus was, was meant to occupy so that he could rule the world from Pergamum. And so you have to keep all these gods happy, but you also have to keep Zeus happy. Otherwise, the other gods won't cooperate with you either. And, and so, there was, so there's a lot of control and fear involved in worshiping Zeus. So this is what life was like 
in the city of Pergamum. And if you were to walk down the streets in Pergamum, everywhere you go, you would find altars or temples or shrines to all of these different gods. And each of these gods needs something from you. Otherwise, they're going to be angry and then you will suffer from their anger. Now, we haven't even gotten to the last one, which is that they, act, they also worship the emperor of Rome. So this is, uh, this is a statue of Caesar Augustus from around the year 9 BC. In the year 9 BC, uh, Caesar Augustus began to insist that he was a god on earth. Actually, the words he used were, were I am the son of God. And so, um, and so this statue, in, in around the year 9 BC, an altar was built and a temple to Caesar Augustus in the city of Pergamum. And so one of the things, if you were occupied by the Roman Empire, as all of these cities were, one of the things that you needed was you needed Caesar to believe that you were the be- your city was the best in the world at worshiping Caesar. And some of the, some of the emperors took it more seriously than others. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that one of the one of the emperors that really got into the whole like I'm a god thing was an emperor named Domitian, who was the emperor at the time that the Book of Revelation was written. And so what would happen is there were temples and altars set up to worship the emperor and, and or Caesar. And so anytime Caesar came through town, what you would do is you would have everyone in the town come to this parade route and they would, as soon as Caesar passed by, they would throw themselves on the ground essentially as a way of trying to prove that their city was the very best in the world at worshiping Caesar. Because if you prove to Caesar that you're the best in the world at worshiping him, then Caesar will make your city what was known as the temple warden. And if you are the temple warden, that means Caesar has decided that you're, that you will be sort of like the hub of, of the Caesar worship, which means Caesar, Caesar's going to start funneling a lot more resources to your city. So there's also an economic component to this. So one of the things that would happen, um, actually, was that Caesar, in every, in every occupied city, Caesar would appoint a governor. And the governor would have what, what they would call uh, the right of the sword. And the right of the sword, essentially, was if someone does not please the empire, if someone does not worship Caesar to your satisfaction, then you have the right to kill them. And so you can imagine in a city that is trying really, really hard to be the best in the world at worshiping Caesar, there's actually a lot of, there's, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that Pergamum actually was the temple warden. Like they were the be- literally the best in the world at worshiping Caesar. So, which means someone from the top is trying to make sure that that happens. Which means if you are not participating in that, you are in very, very serious danger. So this is the world of Pergamum. This is who John is writing to. People who every day, they, go, they leave their homes and they walk the streets and it looks a lot like this. So now let's take a look at this message and see if we can't make any more sense out of it. So in Revelation chapter 4, or I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verse 12, he writes, To the angel, to the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, which again, when, when you're writing to someone and there's someone over them who has the power of the sword, what does it say when they say Jesus has the power of the sword? This is a direct confrontation to the system of Caesar. So it says uh, in verse 13, it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, we could take that and, and just to be like, oh, he like there's a lot of evil in the city. But I mean, think about it in very real concrete terms. Who has a throne in Pergamum? This is not just like, he's not just like being like expressive or hyperbolic. He's, he's making a commentary on a throne that exists in Pergamon. He might be talking about Zeus, but he also might be talking about Caesar. These are fighting words. This is super controversial language to be using in a letter. And so 
He says, yet you, the people, he's writing to the people in the church, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So now we learn there was a guy named Antipas who before this letter was written actually died because he was a part of this church. So at some point, like it, it wasn't just like we're, we're, people are giving us a hard time and people aren't doing business with us. It's, oh, no, no, somebody actually got killed for this. And so now the stakes are way, way high. And so, in fact, there's a lot of, um, there's a suggestion, essentially, that Antipas was one of the first ever martyrs or Christian martyrs in the ancient world. And so you have, and apparently he was from Pergamum and he died in Pergamum. And so now you've got a group of people who have lost people that they care about. And he's saying, he's writing to them and he's saying, it's, I know it's hard. And I know there is so much evil and darkness all around you that every time you walk the streets, it's like literally surrounding you. In fact, I've talked to people who have been to Pergamum and they'll say like, yeah, the ruins of like all the different temples and gods and religions, it's ever, it's almost like it could, it could feel very oppressive to somebody if you just lived there every single day because it's everywhere. And so, so much so that someone actually died as a result of this. So then in verse 14, it says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, uh, that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And this is a whole thing that I wish we had more time to get into, but this is a reference to something that happens in the Old Testament, which is, is one more piece of evidence that shows you that, oh, actually the people that John's writing to have a like, real-time working knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. And then in verse 15, it says, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is the second time we've seen this term Nicolaitans, so let's just t- talk about them for a second. Uh, the Nicolaitans, it's, it's a little ambiguous as to like where they originated or where, like, specifically why this term is the thing that's used to describe them. But essentially what this is, in, the general idea is you have this group of people who were in some way connected to or part of the church. And their whole posture towards things seems to have been like, look, let's just keep the peace Let's just go keep like get along and go along and don't make any waves because like if you need to go to the temple of Asclepius, if you need to, if you need to go to the parade route when Caesar comes through town, just do it. It's not worth the trouble. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth people dying to stand up to your principles. And the Nicolaitans end up getting kind of, they're not like talked about very favorably in the Bible. I mean, very specifically because like. They're, they're talked about people as people who sort of have compromised their principles in order to survive. And so, but think about it. I mean, that's a, that's a real dilemma. Like, I, I have a lot of sympathy for this group of people. That's a hard thing to do. It's really hard. It's really hard to hold to your principles when you have a lot to lose. And it's really hard to stick to what you believe is good and, and pure and right when, when people are dying. Like this is, the stakes are, are very, very high. And you have this group of people who are saying, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to keep, partic- to, to refuse to participate in all this stuff when people are going to die if we don't. And so, um, and so you have this group of people who are kind of caught in this real dilemma. And, um, oh, and by the way, one, one of the things about the, the rule of Caesar is the language they would use about Caesar is really interesting because, again, they would, like Caesar, beginning with Caesar Augustus, would claim like, th- that the emperor was the son of God and that, and that he was sent to earth from heaven to bring peace on earth. 
That's, what, that's how they talked about Caesar. Now, how Caesar would bring peace on earth was by killing anybody who didn't agree with him. That's how peace on earth happens in the world of Caesar. And so to worship Jesus is to insist that Caesar is not Lord and that this way of peace is not actually a way of peace at all. It's actually a very dark, violent system. And to participate in all of these systems is essentially a way of acknowledging and trying and participating in a system that, that affirms the gods are angry, you are not enough, and you have to keep sacrificing more and more and more and more in order to, in order to survive. And so, which is really, really controversial... In, 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 or I'm sorry, to, to follow Jesus who says, no, the work is done and God is love and the gods aren't angry is a really controversial thing in this system, in a, in a system that continues to insist that you need to keep the gods happy. So, um, so let's, let's take a minute and just sort of think, like, okay, imagine, imagine you're a Christian in Pergamum. And imagine that this is your life. Like every time you leave your home, this is what you're faced with. And these are the, these are the conversations you have to have everywhere you go. At what point do you just get tired of it? At what point, how many, how many angry conversations do you have? How many, how many times do people you love have to be arrested? How many, um, how many times do people have to tell you that you're crazy before it just gets to be like, it's just not worth it. And so, um, (laughs) Like imagine you're like, let's say you're in the marketplace and you're having a conversation with someone and the topic of religion comes up because how could it not? And you, you begin having a conversation and it comes up that you are a follower of Jesus and you're a part of this new thing called a church. And, um, and and the person you're talking to begins asking questions and, and the questions are like, Oh, so, okay, this is new because it's not one of these. So what, um, what does that look like? And you begin to sort of say like, well, we believe that Jesus was sent to earth from God in order to bring heaven to earth, to make the world, to make this place look more like heaven on earth and to bring peace and love and reconciliation through, uh, through death and resurrection. And then they say, okay, wait, wait. When you say death and resurrection, what do you mean by that? Well, well we believe that Jesus was killed and then three days later he rose from the dead. And then they say, well, who killed him? Well, and you're talking, by the way, to someone who lives in the city that's the best in the world at worshiping Caesar. And so at that point, you have to say, well, like, like Caesar, like the Romans killed him. And so all of a sudden, this is super awkward. This is way more awkward than telling your grandparents who you really voted for. And, <laughs> and so, um, thank you. And so you, you're in this system, and now you're having a conversation about, okay, and so they say, okay, so you believe that the Romans killed Jesus, and now Jesus lives. So what does that mean? Well, it means... That Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Okay, um, but, but what about the temple? Like, where? Like, there are temples to all these other gods. Where is the temple to Jesus? And the only answer you would have is, well, you're kind of looking at it. And and so now you're sort of in this weird, awkward situation where you are at odds with a system that has existed for a long time and that demands and where in which the gods are constantly demanding more and more and more. And you are participating in a new kind of story that is about grace and hope and love and forgiveness. This is a really controversial thing because sometimes to insist that God is love is actually a really controversial thing to do. And so, um, and again, I would imagine that people would get really, really tired of those kinds of conversations and those kinds of debates and those kinds of arguments. And think about it now. I mean, like how many of us, you find yourself, you, you continue to dial into this idea that, um, that the work is done, that God is love, 
that the whole thing is running on grace and peace and forgiveness and hope and redemption. And then you end up in a conversation with someone who uses the name of Jesus to justify some sort of hate or bigotry. Or you end up in a, in a conversation in which someone insists that Jesus is interested in violence and killing all of the people that you hate. Or that, um, that your understanding of Jesus makes them some sort of like, like intellectual superior. And so people who use Jesus as a way of making other people feel small or dumb. Like, how many times do you have to do that before it just becomes like, it's not worth it? Do we really have to keep having this conversation? It's really hard to continue to hold on to this. And you end up in a conversation where people say things that are, like, really loaded with, like, hate and darkness. And you feel like, I want to say something because to not say something, I feel like I'm kind of culpable. But if I say something, then, like, Thanksgiving is over. And it becomes, like, this very awkward sort of tension that you have to live in. And at some point, it just becomes like, it's just not worth it. How tired do you get when... You, you are on your path and you are discovering the love and beauty and grace and God of God. And like everybody around you is like, no, no, it's about hate. It's about like it or, or the gods are angry and you have to do all these things in order to keep the gods happy. So, in fact, um, look at how he ends the letter or this particular message in verse 17. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will... Um, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, the white stone, this is an interesting thing. In addition to all of the, the different temples and altars in the city of Pergamum, there were also throughout the city white stones embedded in the architecture. And each of the white stones, very specifically, had an inscription written on it. And each inscription was in some way a, a, some sort of affirmation of the glory of the emperor. And so now John is using this, this language of the white stone, and he's saying, if you stay true to your path, you will have a white stone, and it will have your true name written on it. What's he saying? He's saying you have an identity. You have a God-created identity, and it's beautiful. And if you stay true to your path, you will become, you will discover the identity that you were born to have. You will become more and more and more of who God created you to be. But it's hard because sometimes it's really, really difficult to insist that God is love in a system that continues to require the gods to be angry. So, um, I, I would say there's a couple of things. There's a couple of observations, perhaps, as we read this and we try to internalize, like, okay, what does this mean? We're thousands of years removed from this. And um, what, what, is it, what does it look like for us to participate or for us to engage this letter in any sort of meaningful way? I would say there's two observations that perhaps we can draw out of what John is trying to say here. And the first is um, the gods are not angry. Perhaps some of us have spent a lot of our time trying to please the gods. And the gods are different. They have different names now, but they're st- we're still trying to please the gods. If you find yourself in a situation where you are constantly trying to please someone, and no matter what you do, it's not working. And no matter how hard you try, you, have not, you cannot receive this other person's love or acceptance or, um, or approval or, um, or, or, or whatever it is that you're trying to, to receive. And what you're doing in that situation is you're trying to please a God who is constantly angry. And so perhaps the thing we need to remember is that the gods aren't angry. The, the, the beautiful message of Jesus is that Caesar is not Lord and the work is done. And so to, to remember that the gods aren't angry is essentially a way of internalizing you are enough. Who you are is enough. 
you are forgiven, you are free, and you are loved. And if there are, there are systems in place that try to keep you from that reality, then that is something that is evil and dark. You are enough, and the gods aren't angry. If there is some sort of way that you continue to feel guilt or shame, and no matter what you do, it just stays in there, the gods aren't angry. You are enough, and it's time to let that go. Caesar is not Lord. And so that's the, I, w- I would say as, as we're reading this letter to the, to the church in Pergamum, the gods are angry. And then the second thing is you have a path. The beautiful thing about the whole white stone thing and the idea of like continue to stay true to your path is essentially John is saying like you, you are on a path. And some of you have, have abandoned your path because it's really hard because the path is quite lonely and painful sometimes. But you have a path and your path leads to whatever it is that you were meant to be. You have a gift to offer the world. You have something within you that that God has created that makes you a gift to the people around you. And when you stay true to your path, then you get to, to fulfill that part of the story. And so you have a path. But sometimes the path is really painful and sometimes the path is really hard. I, uh, I was joking with someone, I think it was Ryan actually, I, we, were, we were talking the other day and I was saying like, I think, I think pastoring a church has aged me more than being a parent has <laughs> because um, it's just one of those things. Like it's, it's, it's a lot. And, um, and I, I don't say that as a complaint. I, I, um, we've been doing this church for a little over two years. I have never been more excited and more um, devoted to something that I do like the work that, that we've been able to do over the last two years is something I believe in so deeply. I, without a doubt, this is my path. But there are also times where it's really hard, and it's really it, it costs a lot, and um, and so sometimes there are, you will encounter people, or I will as a pastor, in which you have to make a choice between is this something that you believe is is right and good for your church and this community, um, or is this going to compromise? who you are and the path that you're on. Like, and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the guy who emailed me about like, I'll come to your church if you stop talking about gender equality, which like that, that was a no brainer. Um, that, like that's not going to happen. Sorry, buddy. But, um, but every once in a while there will be times when people will, um, will raise some sort of question or objection. And they'll say, essentially it will be like, if you change this, then you will have our support. Or if you change this, or sometimes it's even like, then you, we will withhold our hostility sometimes. And, um, and it happens more often than you would think because, I mean, any, anytime you have a group of people who are moving in a faith direction in some sort of way, there, there's going to be a little bit of pushback no matter what. And so, um, and so every once in a while, I find myself in this place of like, well, I really would like that person's support. Or at the very least, I would like that person to like me, or I would like that person to not be angry with me. And so there, there come these points along the journey where you think like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to, to stay true to who I believe we're called to be as a church? And, um, and sometimes, sometimes the, the cost is, it's a lot because you end up um, you end up not receiving that support or you end up not receiving that encouragement that you really kind of crave. And so um, I would imagine some of us were on a path and sometimes it gets pretty lonely and sometimes it gets very painful and it gets really easy sometimes to think like, what if I just stopped traveling the path? How much easier would it be if I had just stopped? And like I said, I've never loved anything. I've never loved doing something more than I love 
doing this church. I, I go to bed at like nine o'clock on Saturdays because every Saturday is like Christmas Eve to me. I get so excited that I get to be here with all of you. But there's also, but, but it does come with a cost because a path means you are, like it, a path happens to the exclusion of all the things that aren't on the path. And so um, I would imagine there are some of us, we find ourselves in a place where we're getting a little bit tired and we're getting a little bit weary and it's, it's feeling a little bit lonely. And so for what does it look like for you to stay true to the path that God has placed you on? What does it, stay, what does it look like for you to become more and more of who you were always meant to be? Because, again, sometimes it gets really lonely and sometimes we get really tired. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Speaking to his followers, Jesus says in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And when a rabbi, when a Jewish rabbi would say, talk about his yoke, this is um, what, what he's describing is anytime a rabbi had like basically a summary of what that rabbi teaches and believes and thinks, that would be called the rabbi's yoke. And so what, what a student of a rabbi would try and do was to take on the yoke of the rabbi. In other words, try to internalize and embody all of that rabbi's teachings. And so he says, um, take my yoke upon you. In other words, embrace and internalize the things that I'm trying to, to teach here. And he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How many of us were traveling our path, but we really could use a little bit of rest for our souls? How many of us, it's, we, we believe in the thing that we're doing, but it's just, it, sometimes it gets really hard. And sometimes it gets really lonely. And what does it look like for us to continue walking this path? What does it look like for us to internalize the gods aren't angry and there's actually a path that I'm supposed to travel and that path leads to something beautiful. So uh, we're going to take communion because this is a way that we continue to remember and internalize that we, we are loved and we are forgiven and we are receiving symbolically uh, the blood and the body of Jesus as a way of saying, I will continue to become more and more of who God has created me to be. I will continue to travel my path because to not is, is actually not a way of living at all. And so for those of you who are tired, for those of you uh, for whom the path has, has gotten very, very lonely and, and tiresome, may you find rest for your soul and may you keep going. And for, for those of you who find yourself in the midst of a lot of angry gods, may you internalize this beautiful reminder that the gods are not angry and that the whole thing is about love and freedom and grace and peace. May you find that you are enough, that you are loved and you have a path to walk and may you walk that path. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this beautiful gift of life and joy and grace and peace that you have given us. And for those of us who are tormented by the angry gods in our lives, may we drown out those voices. May we remember that we are loved and that we are enough. And that in spite of um, criticism or rejection or um, all of the insecurities that roll around in our brains, May we remember that the thing that defines us is that we are loved and we are forgiven. May we remember that we are enough. And for those of us who are tired, for those of us who are trying our best to travel the path 
that we have been placed on. For those of us who are trying to become more and more of who you've created us to be, but it's getting really lonely and it's getting really hard. May we find rest for our souls. May we come to the table. May we receive the body and the blood. And remember that we are invited to keep going. That on this path lies our true God-given identity. And there is something beautiful that happens when we discover that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.